I could not get out of bed. I was so depressed that I couldn't really move, but I was so anxious that I couldn't sleep. And so I went for about two weeks without sleeping and I entered a psychosis. Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Good evening and welcome to The Depression Files. I'm excited. Uh, Tonight we have Nick Amy on the line with us, and Nick is the Director of Outreach and Development for NAMI Bucks County in Pennsylvania. Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Al. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Nick, I know I bumped into you briefly at the last uh, NAMI conference, and uh, I'm really glad that I have the chance to interview you because uh, I have a lot more questions for you, and I'm excited to get to know you better. Well, I'm excited to uh, answer whatever you have to ask me, Al. And I wish I had gotten to meet you longer at the convention, but there was lots of fun to be had. Oh, absolutely. Uh, So next time, next time we'll have more time to chat. Absolutely. So as the uh, Director of Outreach and Development for NAMI, uh, can you tell us just a little bit about your job for NAMI? Sure. Um, It started off as uh, I was a speaker. I am currently a speaker for the Ending the Silence program, and that has not changed. We visit just about every school in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and Bucks County is a large county. Um, so we're busy with that. In addition, um, NAMI is, is great because, uh, they saw me as a person and not my mental illness. So, um, they recognized that I had some other talents and experience and, uh, I began taking management of the social media and the website and, uh, it turned into, event planning. Um, we have a stride for mental health awareness, which is like a NAMI walk. Um, every May for Mental Health Awareness Month, I planned that with our executive director, Debbie. And um, my job really is reaching out to the, to the community around us and making sure that all of our mental health professionals are aware of NAMI programs, support groups, education, um, that we have a helpline available, and that basically NAMI is a community resource that is reliable and free of charge to anyone who needs support or some education about the condition that they have, or um, if they have no idea how to get to recovery, that we offer support for that. And um, being a family member of a loved one, Uh, Living with a mental illness is difficult also. We support and educate with that too. So it's my job to make sure that everyone knows what NAMI is and what we offer and that um, it's staffed by 
caring people and volunteers who generously volunteer their time to help and support everybody. Uh, that's phenomenal. And obviously you just did a great job of, uh, of letting people know exactly what NAMI is now. And I should say, just for those who may not know, NAMI does stand for the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And I agree, and I just want to second everything you, you said. You know, As far as I'm aware, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but NAMI does not provide direct services. Like you wouldn't go there to see a therapist or to get medication from a psychiatrist. But again, they're an amazing resource that have a lot of courses for those who are dealing with living with a mental illness, courses for family members, courses for loved ones. And uh, in addition to that, a lot of times they're able to connect you with people who, and organizations who do provide the, the direct service in addition to a bunch of support groups um, that they offer for a variety of different types of folks too. Again, family members or those living with mental illnesses. That's absolutely right. We are NAMI is your navigator. So the the world of mental illness and mental health treatment and um, finding good providers is difficult. So and in a time where mental illness is still heavily stigmatized, um, you can come to us without fear of judgment or stigma, and we will navigate for you and help you and support you until you get those professional resources that you need. Right. Yeah, I think it's an awesome first step. So in fact, anybody listening, if you're here in the U.S., they have many, many affiliates throughout the states. Um, I know I'm lucky enough to be about two miles to our local affiliate in St. Paul, Minnesota. So a lot of local affiliates and a great place to start if you don't know where to go. So I like to give a shout out to them as well. And I've given a couple of different presentations that uh, that I'm certified to give through NAMI as well. And they've just they've been an, or, an excellent organization to work for. And then you, Nick, are in one of the few, I believe, positions that actually is a paid position, correct? That is correct. Most of the money that NAMI gets goes directly to the programs but uh, some of the larger affiliates do have paid employees, and it, it becomes an issue of, of needing manpower to support the support systems that we offer. So it is, it's a full-time job, and we have four peer support groups um, now, two which are called Connection, uh, Connection Recovery Support Group. We have two family support groups, and we have four classes per year. And like I said, we we provide um, mental health education in the form of ending the silence, which also covers suicide prevention and bullying and everything like that, to most of the schools in Bucks County. And it's it's a large job. We also have an education coordinator, but we're fortunate enough um, to you know be able in the position to provide paid positions and. Uh, you know, it's a great problem to have too much demand for mental health support and education. That's great. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Tell me, you know, is it true that is it actually a hundred percent or pretty darn close of the of the people who volunteer and work with NAMI actually have a mental illness or have a loved one who's been dealing with a mental illness, but they have some direct uh, relation to mental illness? Uh, absolutely. In our affiliate in particular, 100% of the people who work for and volunteer for 
NAMI Bucks County either live with a mental health condition and are identify themselves as being in recovery, or they've provided the, the care and support for someone who is living with a mental health condition. So everyone at our affiliate, and I believe that's the case in most affiliates. Yeah, that's my understanding as well. And I think that that's really important. And I want to just highlight that because I think that does make walking through the door of a NAMI affiliate much easier. If you are at a point where you're struggling with a mental illness, you can be sure you will be meeting people who have dealt with a mental illness on their own or with a loved one directly. And they're, they're going to understand you. They're going to automatically be empathetic and uh, non-judgmental. So I think that's a huge asset to the, the workforce and volunteers of NAMI. Absolutely. I've never been treated so well as by the people at NAMI. And it's not just my affiliate. I, I love the people that I work with. They're like my family and our volunteers who are incredible. But every affiliate I've visited and at the convention, everyone is just pretty amazing. And uh, we share that common bond of of, you know, living with a mental health condition or loving someone who does. And it's, it's unique. It's, um, you don't find that everywhere. So we, NAMI is truly the only truly stigma free place where you go and there is no stigma. Right. Right. (laughs) Pretty unusual to find a spot like that. And, you know, I would completely agree, uh, just by being at my first national conference where I met you briefly, just meeting all the different people from NAMI, all the people who were there just attending the conference, it instantly you have a common bond, you have some th- a connection to people, and it just makes speaking about issues around mental illness so much more comfortable. Absolutely. If you've ever walked down the street, and whether it's, it's an innate fear that someone will be able to see your mental illness if you've ever known that that fear or in a job interview or meeting a new friend or whatever, you know the relief that comes with being in a room full of people who are like you, just like you. We've right. been there. Exactly. So as, uh, as an employee of NAMI and knowing that you have mental illness of your own, can you share with us uh, what you've been diagnosed with? Sure. So my official diagnosis is schizoaffective disorder, which I just talked about in a presentation this morning at a high school. And uh, along with that comes anxiety and depression. And um, I've also been diagnosed with OCD and um, two commonly um, confused um, diagnoses. Um, Most people, when they hear schizoaffective, they stop at schizo. And they judge me based on that. And whatever the last movie they saw was with with someone with a mental illness, a severe and persistent mental illness. And that's how they see me or hear me or look at me. And um, OCD, I can't tell you how many times I've heard, everybody has a little OCD, come on. And um, I think think all mental illness is pretty misunderstood and, and... the people who live with it are undervalued. But uh, yeah, it's uh, with the schizoaffective, people hear schizo and they stop right there. And they've made their decision about me and that is it. So part of why I work so hard is because of, of all that 
stigma that I faced. I mean, jobs and friends and, you know, relationships, it's judged based on that schizo. And I'm, I'm absolutely done in my life being afraid with introducing myself and saying, I'm, I'm Nick Amy. I work for NAMI and I live with schizoaffective disorder. So I want everyone to be able to be open about their diagnosis and not live in fear of that when they reveal it, that they'll be limited in their opportunities or relationships or whatever. Are you able to kind of put your finger on it and, and give a couple, one or two really clear examples of knowing how the term schizo landed with somebody in a negative way? Yeah. Um, I mean, in, in, in job interviews, I, I went on a job interview before I worked for NAMI and, um, you have to put, if there's any like limitations or if you want to disclose anything. And, uh, I was pretty new to recovery and fairly newly diagnosed. And, um, I just wrote that I have schizoaffective disorder and it's, um, you know, I identify myself as in recovery and I take medication for it. So, you know, in, in case that's an issue and, uh, the, I, I, I got a call and, and, the person had met me who would be interviewing me and they asked me if I was sure that I had it. And I said, yes, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sure. I said, but that doesn't go anywhere. That stays between you and I. And, uh, she literally said that, um, the position had been filled and the interview, the interview was canceled that we had scheduled and that door was closed. And it was, it was a tone of voice. It was, the general like openness that was there before was gone. And, um, I felt like, I felt like the, the stereotype that, that, um, people with anything, um, in the schizophrenia family are just generally less than, uh, less capable, uh, potentially violent and dangerous. And, um, I mean, it, it took me a minute to get over that. And, um, it's it's really not easy. And in relationships, I had done a another podcast and uh, I was working at NAMI at the time and uh, I was dating somebody and um, they had heard this podcast and uh, they literally they literally said to me, oh, my God, what if my parents hear that? And I said, well, what if they do? You know, I, I, I am pretty proud of where I am in my recovery. Well, well, that that might be okay, but what if you ever want another job someday? You will never get another job ever. And substance use is part of my history too, so I disclosed that in this podcast. But I, I just thought every everything that we're working for uh, at, at NAMI that is that is what we're working against is thinking that I will never get a job if I disclose my my mental health condition, I, I, you know, what if it was, and I, and I had asked, what if it was just depression or anxiety? And the, it, it, that, that seemed to be okay. But if it's schizoaffective disorder, that's not okay. Or if there's substance abuse in, in the history, that's not okay either. There's just certain things, I guess, I guess it runs its course that certain things are, are more acceptable than other things. But the thing is, is that most people, when you meet me and when I do Ending the Silence presentations, I ask if I look like I have a mental illness or if I speak as though I have a mental illness. And everybody says, oh, no, no. And 
you know, sometimes when I meet people, they would, they say, I would have never guessed, but, um, just the word, just the, the diagnosis, it puts an idea into people's heads and I'm treated differently. Right. Wow. Well, that's the reason you're doing the work you do, right? Absolutely. Get that that to change. Yeah. It's, I, I, I can't work hard enough, (laughs) but you know, it's, um, we, we do our work and it spreads and, um, thank goodness for podcasts like this one, because I mean, we can only do so much and then anybody who hears this can then spread it from there. So there. So are you able to share with us the difference between schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder? I've heard a couple of different things and it's still a little unclear to me. Well, um, the, the, the main differences between schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder in the diagnostic criteria are the presence of a mood disorder. So when you're diagnosing someone with schizophrenia, if there is a mood disorder there, it's got to be present uh, less than the majority of the time, so less than 50% of the time. And if there is a mood disorder present more than 50% of the time, it can be schizoaffective disorder. So I was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder and not schizophrenia because during my, they call them positive symptoms, which there's nothing positive about them, but um, delusions and hallucinations and disorganized speech the impairment of my functioning, so school, work, uh, interpersonal relationships, during my difficulties with all of those things, experiencing all of those positive symptoms, I had a mood disorder present. And the impairment in functioning has to be present for six months, and those positive symptoms have to be present for one month or more. And during that time, I had a mood disorder. And so... When I talked to the kids, I said, doesn't that sound like an absolute party? Like, who wouldn't want to have all that happening? I have a party, I have a party in my, my head with 10 invited guests, and, you know, it's, it's great, and we're all having a party. And um, it's great until uh, they the voices are negative or the, the hallucinations turn negative, and, you know, and it's it's no longer a party. And it's it, it's actually it still is a party, but you cannot get rid of the guests. Right. So, right. Um, Can you explain so, uh, what you mean when you say a mood disorder? A mood disorder, um, like a depressive episode. For me, it was it was a depressed period. It was uh, the, the, the most depressed I had I had ever been during all these symptoms. Got it. Um, was a time I can remember uh, after my mom had passed away, before my dad had passed away, and uh, I just I was through. I I had attempted to take my own life um, a few months after my mom passed away, and I got through that, and I went to the hospital, and uh, I got out. And um, I think what people don't understand about recovery is that recovery without a purpose, you're just surviving. Um, you're not living. So I, I had no idea what my purpose was. I had no idea how to obtain a purpose. So, um, I, I got really, uh, severely depressed and I wasn't eating. Um, I wasn't drinking. 
um, and therefore I wasn't using the bathroom and um, I could not get out of bed. I was so depressed that I couldn't really move, but I was so anxious that I couldn't sleep. And so I went for about two weeks without sleeping and I entered a psychosis. And um, so, yeah, it, the mood the mood element, schizophrenia is difficult and I don't want to I don't want anyone to think that that I'm saying that schizophrenia is not difficult, but with the added mood disorder, it was pretty unbearable. So being in a in a pretty severe depression and while you're hallucinating and uh, in act, actively in a delusion, believing things that aren't real and hallucination for me was seeing actual people that were very real to me, but were not real to anyone else. It wasn't scary at the time because it was my reality. But uh, looking back on that, that's that's pretty frightening. And and the frightening part about it is that that could happen again if I'm not careful. But uh, yeah, it's um, schizoaffective disorder and schizophrenia. The difference is the mood. And for me, that that additional uh, mood disorder was, you know, it's a, it's a lot to deal with. Oh, so. it sounds like an incredible amount to deal with. So do you specifically say mood disorder and not depression because it could be another mood disorder? Could you be in a mania and hallucinating? You could. So with, with a mood disorder to be diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder, you could be in a mania. Okay. Um, yeah, you, you could be. Mania or depression or a combination. See, it, it could have been a combination for me because I had, I had a lot of, I don't know what to call it, energy that I didn't know what to do with that, that manifested in anxiety and panic, but I was so depressed that I, I had no volition to, to do anything. Couldn't, just couldn't. So yeah, it, it could be either mania or depression. Okay. Wow, I'm I'm really glad I asked because in my mind from what I had heard, I was under the impression that schizoaffective disorder was almost like a lighter version of schizophrenia that wasn't uh, accompanied by the significant hallucinations and, and things. So, um this made it much more clear for me and hopefully for the listeners too. Yeah, and um a lot of people say that uh schizoaffective disorder is like a combination of bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, but in diagnosing schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, you need to rule out bipolar disorder with psychotic features, which which looks a lot like schizoaffective disorder, but they're not the same. So, uh, with with bipolar disorder, I I don't tend to swing between mania and depression. I I it's pretty, it's pretty much strictly the depression for me. And it was a mood disorder that's not constantly present, but it, it has the potential to be present at any time. And uh, so I need to be in constant communication with my treatment team as to what's going on with me. I still go to therapy every week, every Friday. I see my, my, uh, my doctor once a month. And if there's anything going on, I communicate that. Because, you know, the fear for me is going back into a depression or, you know, ex experiencing that psychosis again. I'm not really 
into <laughs> going outside and talking to bushes. So right. I, I try to avoid that. <laughs> so if you go into your doctor and, and they want to know if anything has been going on with you, if anything is different, and at the same time you just explained to us how you were actually hallucinating that people were around you and talking to you, but you didn't think mm-hmm. that was odd or strange, is it possible that you go to your doctor and and legitimately say, you know, everything's fine and actually you're going through hallucinations that you don't realize are hallucinations? If that makes any sense? Yeah, um that it's it's good to have a, a treatment team, a doctor and a therapist and and supports that that know you. Um so if if at this point if I were to go in and sit down with my doctor and my therapist and I was, you know, symptomatic, they would know whether I said I was okay or not. So that's why it's, it's good to have a good treatment team. And, you know, it's, I, I, I did, I was of the belief for a while that I didn't need it. I would use medication until I felt better and then stop. I would go to a therapist and, and, go until I felt better and then stop. Like once I was out of, of the, the, the bubble of crisis. So the crisis is in the middle of the bubble. And then, you know, once I, once I got through that bubble, that, that outer circle where I was sort of back to normal functioning, I would just stop with the treatment. And it's dangerous because I mean, that could happen to me. And I realized that and I did not realize that before, that relapse is part of recovery, but it doesn't have to be if you're in, if you're, if you've got open and honest communication with your supports, so your friends and your family and your treatment team, your doctor and your therapist, and if you're in any kind of support therapy group or whatever, these people know when you're saying that you're okay and you're not. Right. So that's important. Yeah, it, it's interesting. It makes me think of some of the challenging pieces of our mental health system where I've met people who have to change doctors or have to change medicines based on insurance. And mm-hmm. that could be devastating, right? If you all of a sudden found out you could no longer see this team because your insurance only covered certain doctors or something, that, that could put you in a really rough spot. It could. It really could. And... um it's difficult to navigate changes in insurance and changes in mental health professionals, but I am, I'm fortunate that I, I work for NAMI on, on a daily basis and I'm surrounded by people who love and support me and know me pretty well that they would be able to say if, if I was in a, in a transition period between, uh, say therapists or I, I had a lapse in insurance or whatever, um, and I couldn't see them, that something was going on. And, um, you know, I'm fortunate to have that. But if if you're not fortunate enough to work for NAMI, it's it's still there for you. That's why we have those support groups. And a lot, we've had quite a few people come in to the peer support group. I don't I don't run the family support group, but in the peer support group, people come in and they say, I don't have access to my medication. I missed a couple of appointments or whatever. And that happens too, when people don't feel well enough to get to a therapy appointment and it's two and then three and then you're dropped. Yeah. Um, right. That happens. 
And then if you're dropped, you also don't have access to a prescriber to get your medication. And we had one person come in and say, what do I have to do to get my medication? And they alluded to the fact that they might have to do something drastic. And I stayed after for about an hour and we, we worked to navigate him through that. And it's, you know, it's important to have people who have been there, done that, have all the t-shirts and can, can tell you, you know, okay, so this happened and it happened to me before. This is what I did. And you can try this. If this doesn't work, call the helpline and we will stay there with you until you get somewhere that you need to be. But there's no reason that you should be without medication if you need it. Because mental health medication, if mental health is just as important as physical health and you were taking uh, a life-sustaining medication that if you stopped taking it due to a physical illness, you would, you, you would lose your life. So it's life-sustaining. The mental health medications that we take are life-sustaining. Without, without this medication that I'm on, I'm on Clozaril or Clozapine. Um, I don't sleep and then I don't eat. And then I, I move into a psychosis and, and I honestly can't say what would happen if I were in that psychosis. I don't have control at that point. And there are, there are many reasons why mental health medications are life-sustaining, but that's one of them. Mental illness, you know, it, it can be fatal, but it doesn't have to be if, if we are vigilant about it. Right. So I want to take you back much further because I, I'm pretty sure I read that you experienced your very first panic attack when you were in kindergarten. Yeah. Um, wow. Do you still remember that time? I remember. I'll ne- I, I, there's not a lot that I, I forget. There's certain things that I've tried to block out, but that panic attack in kindergarten and no one knew what it was. I had a, a substitute teacher in kindergarten and I was, I was a very, very sensitive and emotional little boy. And, uh, I went into kindergarten. There was a change. It's a substitute teacher and she wasn't the nicest and she wasn't technically a teacher that belonged in kindergarten. But I, I, at that time, um, as, as (laughs) smart as I like to think I am, I couldn't tie my shoes. And she told me that if I didn't figure it out, that she would hang me out of the window by my toenails. And it wasn't just a, a, a passing panic attack. I did not know what to make of that information as a five-year-old. I don't know and, what five-year-old would know. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. And I, I, I went home. I made, I made it through the rest of the day, and I, I guess I just suppressed my feelings. And I got home, and I exploded. And... Um, I couldn't breathe. My mom had to put like ice packs on me. And back then, nobody ever I had I, I hadn't heard the word panic attack. I mean, I, I mean, I was little, but I had never even heard adults say anything about that. So um, and, and my parents didn't think of it as that. They went to the school and uh, talked to the people in charge, the principal and they did, they sided with the teacher and just basically said that I was sensitive and I didn't go back to school for a week. And that, that panic attack, it wasn't, it wasn't a few hours or it wasn't a few minutes. It was, that was a couple days. And I, I mean, I'll never forget that. That's something that you don't forget. It was sort of traumatic for me. I mean, 
there's different thresholds of what people can deal with and especially at different ages in your life. And at that point in my life, that wasn't something I was prepared to deal with. So whether I was sensitive or not, it was extreme for me. And that, that started my mental health history. Wow. That, uh, that's really unfortunate that a kindergarten teacher would say anything like that. And so you're, you don't, think your parents even saw it as a panic attack. Your parents believed you were sensitive, you mentioned. Your parents just kind of wrote it off as you're a nervous, kind of scared child not wanting to go to school, rather than attributing it to any kind of panic or mental health issue. Right. It was, um, so I had been uh, tested to be in the gifted program. So it was, it was revealed that I had a high IQ and so I was placed in the gifted program. And when my mom went, met with the gifted teacher, she told my mom that I was just very intelligent, highly emotional, and I was high strung. And it's a word I, it, that's a combination of words I still don't like to hear because what does that even mean? But as a kid, I didn't know. And I was okay with being high strung as long as no one said that I was crazy <laughs> because at that time, the only, the only, the only, uh, point of contact I had ever had with any kind of mental illness was what I saw in movies. And, um, from what I saw in movies, people with mental illness were locked away and, or had these scary procedures called lobotomies. And I just was not ready to have that happen. So I didn't know that I, it was a mental health condition. No one else did either, but, uh, I knew that something was different about me and it was something that through seeing mental illness in movies and media that I was scared might be me. So I didn't want to end up in a mental institution forever. Um, I didn't know that that didn't happen anymore. I didn't know that lobotomies didn't happen anymore. So I did not talk about it at all. Right. Can you bring us through the, the rest of elementary school? Did you have more and more of these panic attacks or was the rest of elementary school fairly smooth? What was that like? Well, I, I learned that I could sort of uh, self-soothe and, and almost self-medicate as a kid because, you, I mean, I didn't think of drugs or alcohol at the time by eating. And uh, so... I, I, everyone else did recognize, and by everyone else, I mean my peers, so fellow students recognized that I was different, and so I got bullied, and um, so I would, I would come home, and I would eat, and I would hide food, and so I ended up gaining a lot of weight, so I, that kind of uh, carried me through elementary school and middle school, just eating my feelings, like literally, and um, I gained a lot of weight and that added to the bullying and bullying just really affected my mental health. And so from from the from the time uh, after kindergarten, um, I think third grade is is when I really started gaining a lot of weight and just eating more and more to feel better and. I just, I thought, well, if I'm getting bullied for being smart, having better grades, um, looking different, acting different, then I'll try and change who I am completely. And so I sort of developed this identity issue and, uh, 
I, I really felt that if I could be like the people who were bullying me, then they would stop and that they were the way people were supposed to be. They were normal. And so I need to be more like them so that I can get through this. So I modeled myself after these people who tortured me and um, I completely uh, lost sight of who I was. And um, that went on until high school. And uh, in, in 10th grade, I decided that I would basically stop eating because, uh, okay, so, you know, I, I, I managed to get through this far by eating my feelings. So I'm going to stop doing that. And, uh, which meant st stopping eating. So I started exercising like crazy and I just, I ate things like cereal and, and salad without dressing on it. And, um, yeah, I had a, I had, a, I developed an eating disorder too. And, uh, I, I never, I never really got treatment for that, but, um, that stopped when I got to college and I, made myself sick. So I went to school in Boston and Boston is, is fairly far from Pennsylvania and Massachusetts. And, uh, I was away from my family. So my mom had kind of become my anchor and my supporter and the person who was always in my corner. And, um, I was a long way away from her and, uh, I was away from my friends that I knew and uh, I was in this strange place. It was a city. It was loud. I couldn't sleep. I wasn't eating because I it was, you know, focused on being a, a better version of myself, which I thought was the thinnest I could possibly be. And uh, yeah, I made myself physically sick and mentally sick. And um, when I whenever I say that I I didn't sleep, I don't mean that I slept for an hour or two each night. I mean I did not sleep at all, and um, so I went to the wellness center, and uh, there you know they said that I probably had mono, and um, my dad came up and and picked me up and took me home for a little bit, and um, I was treated for mono and. Um, went back and I was, I was kind of told by everyone there, um, that I could bring myself down to a level of normal by using drugs and alcohol. And, um, that was the start of that. And, uh, that was not good. <laughs> that was your freshman year in college. That was the freshman year in college. Yep. Yeah. So, wow. So you weren't sleeping. We know how detrimental that can be on one's health. You talked about a physical illness. How did that manifest? Um, was it just the the weight piece or what else was going on physically? Well, I mean, uh, mental health and physical health are pretty closely tied. I, I, I didn't have any idea that you could, because of what was going on in your mind, make yourself physically sick. Um, but I wasn't, I wasn't doing anything to help that with as far as nutrition and rest go. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I man, I managed to get through, and um, I just, I mean, <laughs> I, I tortured myself into into a physical sickness, and uh, you know, we treated that, and and I was fairly okay. And I remember uh, the next time I came home, though, after school, I told, I sat down, and I I told my mom that 
although, you know, I had been through everything I had been through and I, I kind of, I kind of got through the substance use and, uh, it wasn't as big of a deal for me anymore. I, I didn't, I wasn't so concerned with being like the people around me, but I got home and there was still something wrong. And, um, I told my mom that I didn't want to live anymore. And, uh, she, she was hysterical. And, um, when we do parent presentations for ending the silence, I recount this part of the story and I tell them that everyone wants to know what you should do if your child comes to you in crisis, whether they're an adult child or an adolescent, doesn't matter. Your child always knows the difference between a look of genuine care and concern and terror. And the way my mom reacted, I have never heard her cry like that. And I've never seen her face look like that. And I never wanted to see it again. So my mom took me to a family doctor. And uh, the family doctor prescribed me medication. And um, I just knew, I, I knew, I'm not going to take this medication because I don't have a mental illness. And I'm, I'm determined not to. And I never want to see my mom act like that again. So I'm never going to talk about it. Anything that's going on with me mentally, it's, it's between me and me and that's it. And, um, yeah, I mean, and it stayed that way until she passed away. Wow. I'm sorry to hear that. Like, it sounds like she was obviously caring and loving and very scared. And then it actually turned you into a point of not wanting to scare her and not being willing to share with her anymore. Right. And, um, you know, we, we tell kids to, to go and speak to a trusted adult and, um, you know, it, it's, it's important to know that sometimes your, your parents love you so much. You are the, the, you know, their, their pride, their pride and joy. And if, if you come to, to your parents and you say that you might not want to live anymore, that's like their worst nightmare. So of course she reacted that way. She loved me. I loved her, but just as she loved me and didn't want to see me die and reacted the way she did, I loved her so much and did never wanted to put her in that emotional state ever again. Didn't occur to me that, uh, maybe getting help (laughs) for my mental health would, keep her out of that place, that emotional place that she went to when I told her about that. It just, it, it, I was young. And the only thing that occurred to me was just don't do that anymore. Don't, don't let that happen again. And, um, so that's what I did. So as an alternative to seeking mental health, uh, treatment, um, I turned back to the drugs and alcohol. Yeah. I was going to mention that you just, you had kind of breezed past that part what were you abusing? What types of substance? And then, so it sounds like you relapsed after she passed away or after you had shared with her that. I wasn't officially uh, an addict or an alcoholic through college, but when I, when I, so I wasn't in recovery ever. So it wasn't technically, it wasn't technically a relapse. If you want to call it that, I just went into it full steam. uh, When I knew that, not necessarily that there was something wrong with me, 
because I had nothing to compare it to. I've never been anybody else. I don't know what that's like. So I knew that there was something within me where it is. I couldn't tell you, but within me somewhere that I couldn't manage. And, um, I figured that now I'm an adult and what do adults do? Um, there's bars everywhere. People drink and, um, it seems like they, they, they occasionally use drugs. So that must be how people get through life. And so that is what I'll do. So that was my decision. And um, at this at this point, I was working. I had a good job and I had a lot of responsibility. And uh, yeah, so I, I went with that and and I was I was functioning. And uh, by all appearances, I looked like I was doing well and um, I did well fairly if you if you can call it that until one morning I woke up and um, I heard my mom make a noise and I, I know her very well so I went out and I said mom and she didn't answer me and I said mom again and I went into the living room and my mom was unconscious and I thought that she had had a stroke and uh, turns out she we went to Jefferson Hospital, which is a university hospital in Philadelphia. And uh, they said they took us into this small conference room that no one wants to go into in a hospital and said, your mom had a brain aneurysm. And I didn't know what that was. They explained it. And uh, she had a severe bleed in the brain as a result. And they said, we're going to try this new procedure where they put a copper coil in the brain and they were hopeful, so they gave us hope. And uh, yeah, so they said, go back to work and do what you've got to do. We don't really want you to see your mom like this right now. And uh, just we'll let you know what goes on. So I went back to work and I did visit her. And uh, she never regained consciousness after that. But I got a call one day at work and they said, this is nothing is working for your mom. We don't want to keep her in this state. If we were to keep her alive, uh, she wouldn't have any quality of life whatsoever. She wouldn't be, you know, awake. So we had to take her off life support. So it was uh, I, there. There were several. There are several points in my story where I I really felt like my life was over, and that was one of them. So wow! And they told you that on the phone, huh? Yeah. Yep. I, I was at work and uh, they told someone to drive me to the hospital. And um, yeah, it's just uh, one of those things in, in, that, you know, people say, you know, it's part of life and, you know, it's you just deal with it. But what happens when you can't deal with it? What right. do you do? Right. How about how old were you? How long ago was this? 25. Um, I'm 36 now. So okay. years ago. Wow. Sorry uh, that you had to go through all that. That sounds really pretty traumatic. Yeah. It's, uh, I think it's, it's um, difficult for anybody at any age to lose a parent, but yeah, uh, she was, my mom was my person and um, I really felt lost after that. And so uh, I didn't put any any uh, care or concern into how I acted after that. So, um, yeah, I, I went uh, pretty heavily into the 
into the drug use and and what I I would I I had never used um, like IV drugs or anything like that. I I was uh, abusing prescription opiates and um, benzodiazepines. So um, a, a pretty lethal combo. Um, but uh, I was somehow functioning on all that, and it wasn't just a little bit. So I went on like that, and I obtained these things through illegal means, and my career ended, and my I felt like my life ended again when I got caught, and I was arrested. And um, it was... Uh, uh, about a, um, so my mom passed away in uh, January, and I made it to her birthday in September of that year, and uh, I made a decision to end my life. And um, through those illegal means, like I said, I obtained enough of what I thought was enough to end my life, and um, I I I went about it, and. Um, I woke up three days later and, um, when I was, I, I woke up and I got arrested and, uh, it's something that you, you know, I mean, this intelligent, sensitive little boy, I, I was just trying to get through life. And, uh, I was sitting in the back of a police car wondering if my mom was looking down on me thinking I didn't raise Nikki like this. She called me Nikki. And I didn't raise Nikki like this, and uh, I—he didn't mean to do this, and um, he just made a mistake. It wasn't—it wasn't, you know, on purpose. And um, but she couldn't communicate for me, and I couldn't really advocate for myself. And uh, yeah, I got in pretty big trouble. I didn't go to jail or anything, but uh, it, my career ended at that point, and. Um, I, instead of going in, into a mental health facility, uh, I went into a drug and alcohol treatment facility, a good one, because it was one the, one of the uh, ones that are specifically for professionals. And um, so I'm not saying it wasn't good, but I am saying that I was so, I was far too scared to ever admit that I had anything wrong mentally. I was okay with saying, yes, I've used pills. Yes, I've used alcohol. Yes, I'm sad because my mom died. And I honestly felt that my level of sadness should be proportionate to how much I loved her. And that if I stopped the sadness, then she would somehow, wherever she is, think that I didn't love her anymore. So I was really scared to say that anything more than that um, that sometimes I lost touch with reality. Sometimes I wasn't quite sure who I was at any given time. Sometimes I heard voices. And oftentimes it was all the time. <laughs> so still in the back of my mind was how my mom had reacted that first time. And whatever I had seen in the movies, that people literally get locked away forever. And I, I couldn't have that happen for myself. So my way of protecting myself was just saying, yep, drugs and alcohol and depression. And so we treated that. And um, yeah, and and um, I've been, yeah, going with that since. But uh, yeah, I, I, I got out of treatment 
dealt with the legal issues and uh, somehow somehow got through. And uh, I made one more – another attempt on my life um, because I, I couldn't figure out what was going on with me. I couldn't get my act together and I, I really felt that I was in so much mental and emotional pain and I was such a burden that I had to end that. And it, I didn't consider – that it would cause people that love me pain. I thought that I was really doing everyone a favor. So um, that attempt obviously didn't work. So that's that point of the story. What, uh, you know, you mentioned kind of your uh, stockpiling and what you did after your mom um, had passed away and you said you were unconscious for three days? Three days, yep. And how were you found and who found you and where? Um, my employer was, was, I was, I was living with my dad at the time after my mom had passed away and, um, my employer was trying to get a hold of me and couldn't. And so they called the house and I kept interesting hours. I, I, I've always been a very hard worker. So, um, Anytime I took time off from work, I, I'm pretty sure that my dad just thought I was sleeping because I worked a lot of hours. And so I think that's what he thought. And when my employer called the house and said, where is Nick? <laughs> what is going on? Like, where is he? Send him in here. I mean, I, I, I woke up and, and uh, I, I, I forgot what had happened. I forgot what I did. I didn't know what was going on. And, um, yeah, that's, that's where I, where I got arrested. I, I, I literally woke up, got in the car, flew down the highway to work and I was met with police officers. So yeah, it's, it's, it's what you do it. Well, I mean, it's, it's, um, so I, I don't, I don't think that, um, mental illness is an excuse for, uh, anything that I did, it's, it was a, it was a conscious decision that I made to do these things, but, uh, it, it just, it all could have been avoided if I had just said, there's something going on. I believe it's in my mind and I do not know what to do about it. And I don't necessarily want to live anymore. And I've got a plan of how to end it. So I just, I, I couldn't do that. And so, uh, what happened happened and I, I, I did it. I, I paid fines and I, I did probation and, um, I did what I had to do. And, um, there's just, uh, there's, there's only so much people can take before it's just too much to continue on living. So, yeah. What, uh, how long was the time between the, the second and the third attempt? Um, so the first, the first one was on my mom's birthday. Um, the first year after she died, the second one was about a year after that. Um, because I still didn't, I didn't get another job. I didn't see one in the future. I didn't know how to explain what had happened if I were to ever go on an interview. And um, I kind of felt like it was over. And my dad was supporting me. 
and I wasn't, I wasn't acting okay. Um, I wasn't acting the way I, the way people should act. I was, I was miserable. I was mean. I didn't treat people well. And it, it had nothing to do with anybody else. It had everything to do with me. I was so unhappy with myself and all the while I had voices in my head, which if, if anybody listening has ever had voices, if you, if you've, if you've always had voices, you don't know what it's like without them. So you don't know what regular thinking is without a voice. So oftentimes I thought that it was just me thinking and, uh, they were telling me that I was worthless and I'd never amount to anything. I'd never have a purpose. I would never do anything. And, um, yeah, it was just, it was, it was too much. And, um, so that resulted in that, that second attempt. And I went to the hospital and, um, I was, I was more honest than, than what I had been before. And I admitted that, you know, yes, I, I don't always have a grounding in reality. Um, and I believe I hear what our voices and I was in the hospital for about a month that time. And, um, I was given my diagnosis of schizoaffective disorder. And, uh, I was 28 at the time. So that second attempt, uh, so it was a little bit longer than a year. And yeah. was that the only diagnosis they gave you at the time? At the time, I believe it was, they were trying to figure out whether it was bipolar disorder or uh, schizoaffective disorder. So through trying a few different medications and watching me and talking to me and, you know, they, we determined that it was schizoaffective disorder. Looking back now, knowing what I know now, that was pretty clear, but being given the, the schizoaffective diagnosis, I, I begged for a diagnosis of bipolar. I didn't want that, that schizo word, uh, associated with me. I wasn't okay with that. But I was also at the time uh, diagnosed with an anxiety disorder, not otherwise specified, and OCD, and um, what they thought might be ADHD. So, yeah, it was uh, it was interesting. And one of the kids today in our presentation asked if you could be diagnosed with multiple mental illnesses, and I said, yes, you absolutely can. And another question was, a lot of the symptoms overlap, so how do people diagnose it? And they they do exist independently of each other sometimes. So they're very different diagnoses, and um, I feel them differently at different times. And, you know, it's it's just something that I work through with my therapist. We talk about how the OCD is and how the schizoaffective disorder is and the voices and, and all that. And yeah, I just, uh, I, f I feel lucky that we were able to identify it. I feel like a lot of times, you know, if you're, especially if you're not honest, it's hard to identify. Right. Absolutely. You said you spent a full month of inpatient after your attempt. A month of inpatient. Yeah. Can um, you share with us what that was like? <laughs> uh, 
it's not like what you see in the movies and it's not like um, what you see on TV and it's most likely not what you not like what you hear about. Um, I was terrified and um, I've been in the hospital three times and uh, each time I go in, I don't want to be there. But by the time I'm ready to be discharged, I don't want to leave. It's it's safe. Um, there are other people like me. And I thought I would never find that anywhere else. And um, when you're when you're when you're scared of yourself and what's going on in your head, it, it, it kind of is a safe place. It was a safe place for me. A lot of people don't like it because your freedom is restricted. And in order to keep you safe, that's necessary. So, um, you know, when I went into the hospital, a couple of those times I was, I was in a psychosis. I, I was in an active hallucination and I didn't know where I was. And, and I woke up twice in a bed in a hospital and, um, that's scary. So it can be scary. So, you know, I, I would tell people that no matter what you're feeling when you first go in there, if you, if you make the most out of it and you just take what you need from it and leave the rest of it, uh, you'll have a good experience and don't just don't expect too much. It's not a hotel. It's not a vacation. It's not a country club. You know, you're not deprived of anything, but I mean, you don't have every single thing you'd possibly want all the comforts of life. But, um, yeah, it, it was not as bad as, uh, when I was little, being put into being involuntarily committed. Um, it's not as bad as what I thought it would have been. And I also tell people to consider how difficult it is to run a facility like that, to manage it, to, to work there in every single day. And, um, just, just try to remember that if you ever get there, if you're ever there, that these people are, are there by, by choice that they wanted to help other people. So they're there to help you not to hurt you in any way. Can you share what a typical day was like while you were there inpatient? You wake up and you, if you wake up to a slip under your door in this particular, these particular facilities, if you wake up to a slip under your door, you go for blood work and then you, you eat breakfast and you go to a morning group where you find out what's happening for the day. Then you usually have time to go and shower. And then you have a group therapy session in the morning that's usually fairly long. You go and you have a break. You have lunch. You come back. You have an activity. And it's it's usually some form of like uh, – art therapy or some occupational therapy. And, um, then you have another break. Um, you have some free time, you have dinner. And then at night they invite, uh, different groups in like NAMI, um, like AA and, uh, yeah. And then you have a little bit more free time. You get your meds, ah, meds. (laughs) So meds in the morning at breakfast meds in midday if you need them if if that's what's what you're what's on your treatment plan and then um nighttime meds and you uh people come around throughout the day with clipboards and usually it's every 15 or 20 minutes and you get checked on and uh 
So you can see how there's pretty much no privacy. So um, that's an, that's that's an issue for a lot of people. But if you kind of understand what it is and and why you're there and what's going on, and try to have some understanding of the process, it's it's not so bad, and it's not forever. <laughs> Well, a couple of things that sound really good, actually, is it gives structure to your day. It does. Um, you're with others, like you said, that can relate to you. It sounds like it is therapeutic and, and opportunities to learn and, mm -hmm. and, and grow from that experience and while you're working towards your recovery. There are. And if you're not, I mean, me, let's talk about me. So I wasn't eating properly, sleeping properly, thinking properly, taking medication properly. Basically, I wasn't living properly. So in, in that inpatient setting, you're given meals at certain times, you, you go to bed at certain times, you wake up at certain times. And if, if after a period of time, you're unable to do that, there are people in your treatment team who can help identify the issues that are preventing you from sleeping, eating, taking your meds, um, meds working properly. And so it's, it's, you're monitored too. And it's not in a bad way. It's for you. It's for, it was for my own good. And that's how, you know, med changes were made. One of the best places for med changes are, are in inpatient facilities. Um, especially if you're new to, medication in general, or if you just had a pretty serious episode. So sounds like a very safe, uh, safe place. And it seems it, like it was really clear to you that, that it was all to support you and caring professionals. It is, it, but I want to be clear that it's, it's, it wasn't always clear to me at first when I right. first there. And it's not clear to a lot of people when they get there at first. So some people's first few days in an inpatient facility are pretty uncomfortable because it's, you know, you've, you've got to get used to someone helping you to learn to live, basically. Well, um, and like you said, you woke up disoriented, right? All of a sudden you're in a hospital. You don't know where or why. Yeah. Um, you, you've lost uh, your ability to, to go out and do what you want when you want. So I could definitely see the stressors and kind of shock to the system in the beginning and almost fear. And uh, yeah. Right. Being in an inpatient facility isn't part of, of uh, you know, regular everyday life. It's not going to work, coming home, seeing your family, eating. And it's it's a disruption to what what most people would consider regular life. It's not in, it's not in the human handbook that, okay. So at 18, you go to an inpatient mental health facility and see what that's like. It's just not part of, of the groove. So, um, yeah, to wake up in a place like that when you don't know where you are and you didn't know you were going there is pretty startling. But, you know, if you, if, if, anybody listening has a better understanding of the process. I'm not saying that it's a play, it's a destination. Like you, it's a goal to go there, right. but I'm just saying it's not, it's not, you know, club med or whatever. It's, it's, um, it's something that you shouldn't be scared of and, and resist with all your will. If you do need to go there, it's it, thank God they're there. You know? Yeah, absolutely. How many people would you say, 
you were with. So like when you went to a support group within the inpatient or your uh, art therapy, how many people in a group? Oh, well, you're, you're split up into, into different groups. Um, so, um, there were, I don't know. Uh, the one, the one, well, there are wards. If it's a larger facility, there are, there are usually, uh, buildings or wards or, uh, whatever you want to call them that are then divided further into smaller groups. And throughout the day, you've got a schedule and say group A follows this schedule and goes to groups at these times and then they alternate. So within your, within your small group, about 10, 10 to 15 people. Okay. Yeah, it was, that's very similar to what my uh, partial hospitalization program was, where I was going home at night, and I would go into the program, and we had separate groups as well. And there were two different groups in this little kind of wing of the hospital, and uh, each had about 10 to 12, I would say. And for us, it was kind of, and I would imagine the same for you, kind of rolling enrollment. So somebody finished their three weeks and then they would leave and there'd be an opening. So a new person would come and then somebody else's three weeks might end the next day or two days later. So different folks were kind of coming and going. Yeah. And I did partial hospitalization programs too. I've done, you know, group therapy on a regular basis the uh but so that wasn't my last stay in a hospital that time <laughs> so every time i left the hospital when you're discharged you're not just left uh to your own devices you're 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 given discharge instructions in a plan and it it usually for me it included partial hospital program and um intensive outpatient treatment but that 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 second stay in the hospital wasn't my last I, I got out and uh, I, I, was, I was following my routine and I was doing everything that I thought I needed to do. And uh, one day I woke up and my uh, dad had passed away. So I, I told, there's points in my story where I thought my life was over. So that was another one. So, oh my goodness. Uh, and, and so you found your father after uh, he had passed away. Yeah, my dad was a chef and um, he went to work fairly early in the morning and he didn't go one day. And um, I forget who it was from the restaurant, what his role was, but uh, he came to our house to check on my dad. And um, I woke up and um, I woke up to my door, my bedroom door flying open and someone saying, Nick, Nick, your dad is dead. Nick, your dad is dead. And it was loud and it didn't stop. So it wasn't just twice. It was, it was constant. And I didn't know what I, I didn't know what I was doing. And, um, I fell all over myself and I went into my dad's bedroom and, and he had passed away in his sleep. He had a heart attack in his sleep. And, um, I, 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 I mean, I don't know if I had made deals with myself that, you know, um, my mom had passed away, so I was I was sure to have my father for a little longer. Never made a plan for my life as to what I should do if I lost both of my parents. But I was certain of one thing when I went into that bedroom and saw my dad was that my life is over. And um, I didn't think at that time of ways that I could go on or could live or could do anything. I just... I just knew that that was it. And so 
I was taking mental health medication and I made it my mission to go out and, and drink as much as I could alcohol and then take as, as a, a, a lot of medication and, um, uh, not be here anymore. And I usually don't like to talk about the methods that I use, but, um, I think it was fairly obvious what, uh, was going on. So my sister figured out what I was doing and she took all of the medication from me and any sharp object that was around and, uh, hit it. And I don't know how people know how to help someone who's, who's thinking of taking their own life if they've never, uh, had any kind of support or education, but in, in grieving for my father who had just passed away a few days before my sister had the wherewithal to keep me from taking my own life. And, and that time I, I meant business. And, uh, so that night I, I came home and I, I was, I was in a state um, I had drank a lot and, uh, she confronted me and as you should with anyone who you think it might be considering taking their own life. And she said, are you going to kill yourself? And I said, yes, I am. And I lost it. And I said, I, I can't live. I don't know how to live. I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I'm taking medication, but I, I can't get rid of these voices. They're really bad. I don't know what's going on. And, uh, so she, she let me sleep on the couch and my sister-in-law stayed with me. And in the morning I woke up and, um, after a long talk, I said, well, I guess we're going to the hospital. And so that was my last day in a hospital. I've been sober ever since. And my dad passed away. It'll be two years ago on December 7th. And, um, yeah. And in, in my, uh, in my discharge packet that time, I did go to partial hospital, uh, intensive outpatient. I did group therapy for a long time. Um, I had, I had some wonderful therapists. I mean, if, if you, if you believe in angels, um, therapists are angels, you know, they're, they're right. amazing. I mean, saved my life. I mean, my sister saved my life. Uh, these therapists saved my life. The people in the hospital saved my life. And I still hear people say, you know, oh, I hate that hospital. It was awful. You know, we only got one sandwich when we wanted two or whatever, but they literally, they, they saved my life. They kept me safe until I could keep myself safe. And, uh, they gave me a plan of action when I left. And I mean, it was just, it, it, it helped me out tremendously. And, um, I, in my discharge packet was, uh, NAMI as a resource. And, um, so I kept my discharge packet and I went to therapy and, um, you know, the partial hospital and, uh, yeah, I, I was in, uh, I was, I was waiting for, for my therapist the one day and a friend of mine came in and said, you know, you're doing well and you've got a good story. You should tell it. And I said, Oh, okay. Where, well, where? And she says, well, the national Alliance on mental illness. And at that point, my definition of recovery was walking down the street and looking normal. So I, I had no interest in outing myself as a person living with mental illness. 
So it scared me, but I went home and I thought, well, if there's a national alliance on it, maybe I, you know, there's other people like me. And then I did some research and I realized that there are other people like me and some of them aren't doing as well. So I kind of have a responsibility to speak for the people who can't speak. And so uh, I joined NAMI and uh, I, I, I mean... The, the second presentation I ever gave was in a middle school, and I told my story, at which they train you. I mean, you can't just come up and say anything. So, you know, I was trained, and I got up, and I told my story, and this little girl came up, and she said, I have really bad anxiety, and my mom told me that I could never be an actress, and I really want to be an actress, but I think after hearing your story, I can be an actress now. And she gave me a hug. Oh, Wow, I'm I'm in the right I'm doing the right thing. This is this is what I need to be doing. Like why didn't I find this sooner? And then in hindsight, you think, why didn't I just ask for help in the beginning? I could have avoided all of this, but it is what it is and you know, it it everything that I've been through, I I really don't regret it because it 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 did make me the person that I am. I am I am I'm pretty strong. Uh, because of all that. And uh, it is one heck of a story. So, Well, and I agree, you know, well, it's easy to say I wasn't the one who went through it all, but it did uh, make you who you are. It did bring you to NAMI. It did bring you to doing the work that you're super passionate about, clearly, and probably saving lives and allowing little girls like that middle schooler, that's so awesome, to understand that I can do this too. Yeah, it it just, you know, anytime if if I wake up in the morning and I just really, you know, don't feel like doing anything that day. I mean, not having a bad mental health day, just, you know, general laziness, don't feel like doing anything. I think of that little girl and I think of uh people who are literally living in silence with the same things that I went through and you know, that's saying it takes one to know one. And, uh, there's a lot of people who, who tried to talk to me in, in my active illness and my active addiction. And I didn't really want to listen and I didn't listen. And, you know, I think if, if someone like me came to my school and did what I do and talked to me, uh, openly and honestly, and they know they these kids know if you're not telling the truth and, um, you know, really said what it's like and that there's hope and look where I am now and look at all the good things I'm doing. And, you know, I'm a writer, I'm a graphic designer and all this stuff. And, you know, I, I I'm not what you think mental illness is. You know, if I could go back and say, Nick. Mental illness is not what you think it is. Depression is not what you think it is. Depression literally does not take away your intelligence or your capability or, you know, it doesn't have to take away your quality of life. You can live a good life with with schizoaffective disorder, with depression, with anxiety, with OCD. And in fact, if you learn to hone those things that people think are deficiencies, uh, they, they work in my favor. I mean, you know, 
there's there's things that I I feel like I you know maybe it's the mental illness, maybe it's just you know drive, maybe it's whatever, but I think it all works together and. You know, I give Nami and Debbie and Lori at my affiliate. Debbie's my boss, the executive director. They never once said to me, ah, Nick, I don't know. You've got a mental illness. Maybe you shouldn't do that. Or maybe you shouldn't go and talk to these people. Or maybe, you know, they never limited me. Right. Uh, You know, so, I mean, just with with a little support and, and some knowledge of what's actually going on with you and um knowing that you're not really limited you're only limited maybe you have to work a little harder sure but uh you're not limited you can do whatever it is that you wanted to do yeah and And sometimes that uh the working harder is actually just working differently it it is yeah not to take away not to take away from the challenges but sometimes it's figuring out how to do something a little differently yeah. I mean, there are there are times that, you know, I know for a fact that that going to the gym, eating right and sleeping are like non-negotiables for me. So working around the things that work for you. I know that I've got to take my medication an hour before I want to be asleep and I need to then sleep for a certain amount of time or else the next day is not going to be anything. So I do work differently. I work with the knowledge that there are those non-negotiables and therapy every Friday at noon. Um, you know, I mean, and I'm, I'm lucky that I, I work for NAMI, but you know, there, there are certain things that, that you can, you can work all that in no matter what job you have. Um, you do it. You, you absolutely do it because just like, and I, I mean, I hope no one's offended if I compare it to cancer, but if you had cancer and you were still working, no one would expect you to not go and get your chemotherapy or whatever the treatment was that was recommended for you. So, uh, I think it's reasonable to be able to work your schedule around whatever it is that you need to do for your mental health condition. Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to ask you, I don't think it was until fairly recently when I was checking out some info on Twitter and doing some tweeting, and I realized that Nami actually has a mascot. Oh, geez. (laughs) So do you want to share that with us? (laughs) Sure. I think you know exactly what I'm getting at. Well, I do. So (laughs) (laughs) there's uh, we have a mental health superhero because I I honestly think that if you can live with a mental illness, you deserve your own superhero. And so you have one and it's Nami Man. Nami Man. Nami Man. (laughs) And it's. It's uh, he is he is a mental health superhero and his superpower is crushing stigma and he goes and uh, when whenever we give a presentation in a school, it's Nami man is the one to declare it stigma free. And uh, at our 
I don't know if everyone calls them base service units, but the but the places where people would go if they were having a crisis, if they were in crisis, the the mental health facilities in your community that are designated places, safe places for you to go and uh, receive treatment uh, and be assessed. So I go to those and I I visit them and. Uh, we we do a little walkthrough, and I declare it stigma free. I mean, Nami Man declares it stigma free. I was gonna say <laughs> nobody really knows who Nami Man is, right? He's a masked superhero. Yeah. <laughs> yep, he declares it stigma free. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, I loved uh, some of those pictures. So, first of all, I want to thank you for sharing your story. And thank you for the incredible work you do to support NAMI, an incredible organization. I wonder, uh, before we end, if you could share, I know you shared some pieces of advice and thoughts along the way, but what would you leave as kind of a final thought, a final piece of advice or piece of hope for somebody who might be struggling currently? Honestly, there there is really no one else in the world like you, whoever's listening, and you too, Al, but there's no one else in the world like you. So regardless of your diagnosis, whether you've got what I have, schizoaffective disorder, depression, anxiety, uh, bipolar disorder, there's no one else like you, which means that you're able to do something uh, better than anyone else is able to do. So whatever that is, put Put everything into it. Learn how to use your diagnosis toward that. Learn how to use your strengths and gifts toward whatever it is that, that is your passion, that makes you happiest, that uh, wakes you up in the morning, uh, makes you happy. If you've lost it, remember it. Go back to it. That's your thing. That's your superpower. So everybody has superpowers, not just Nami Man. Um <laughs> And uh, just you're you. So whatever you need to do for you, you do for you. As long as it's not hurting yourself or anybody else, that's absolutely okay. You deserve that. And that being said, if you're if you're considering uh, that it's a possibility that you don't want to live anymore, just remember that there is a purpose that you have to serve that no one else can. And it's a gift. So don't take that away from us. So if you need help and you think it's scary and you're scared of it and people will think that you're weak or whatever, don't be scared. There are tons of people in your corner and you will be too much for some people. And talking about your feelings will be too much for some people. They are not your people. So we're your people. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And reach out for help, right? If you're at that point where you think you want to end it, that is time to really do the strong thing and to reach out. Yep. Today's, well, when we're recording this, it's International Men's Day. And uh, men seem to have a more difficult time talking about their mental health and feelings and and everything like that. But uh, it's it's really the right people will see it as such a strength that you reached out for help it will not it won't it won't be used against you by the right people and find those right people we're we're those right people and if you don't know where to find them just ask us we'll tell you 
Absolutely. All right. Some great words of wisdom. Well, Nick, again, uh, I want to thank you for being on The Depression Files. It was great to, to hear your story. You have been through a lot, and you have done an amazing job of utilizing your mental illness towards your benefit and uh, the benefit of NAMI and the benefit of many, many, many others who uh, you share your experiences with. Well, I really appreciate what you do and uh, having me on. And it just goes to show that you're not limited. So great. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks for your time, Nick. Make sure you stay healthy. Thank you. I will. You too, Al. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.